of Worship, your source for commentary and discussion on worship, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Hello and welcome to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones continuing this series called The Psalm Project, where I am setting every single psalm, all 150 psalms, to music. And uh, before presenting the tunes that I've composed, I am giving you my commentary on the psalms. And it has already been an enlightening experience for me and hopefully for you too. The Psalms are, I mean, when you read the Psalms as they are intended to be read and understood as as poetry, as uh, songs of worship to God, um, prayers to God, they the Psalms are more formative than people realize. And so my goal is that this book becomes formative to you as it has been to me. So um, we've gone through Psalms 1 through 5, and uh, Psalm 5 I recently covered um, is a psalm, a lamenting psalm, and Psalm 6, which we are going to cover today, is also a lamenting psalm. So let's get into it. This is, unlike Psalm 5, it's an individual lament, and as with many laments, the psalmist here um, it's, it, it is ascribed to David. In fact, my Bible says to the choir my, uh, master with stringed instruments, according to the uh, Shemineth. The Shemineth, it's probably a musical or a liturgical term. So if your Bible has that in the title or after the title of Psalm 6, um, that, that word, Shemineth, probably refers to a liturgical or musical term. But it is ascribed to David. And as with many laments, this psalm expresses David's trust in the Lord at the end of the psalm. Uh, you often see this in lamenting psalms, um, even in, in imprecatory psalms and cursing psalms. You see that the psalmist will often either frame the lament or the negative emotions, whatever it is, uh, the curse, if you will, in, in an imprecatory psalm, he will the psalmist will often frame that text with words of praise and worship to glorify God, or will end with that. So God still gets the glory in these psalms. In other words, even though the psalmist is lamenting, the focus is not on him, but on his God. And so, the occasion of the psalm here appears to be a severe illness. You will see that in verses 2 and 5 of Psalm 6. And this is one of um, seven what are referred to as penitential psalms, along with Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, 102, 130, and 143. These are referred to as penitential psalms. And so... Uh, this is one of seven of those. So I want to read the text to you, and uh, and then we'll get into it, okay, and, and break it down, unpack it. So beginning with verse 1 of Psalm chapter 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? 
Return, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of the grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Um, so let's get into this. As we are, um, as we're going to break this and unpack it, break it down. So, beginning with verse one, it, it talks about rebuke and discipline. And the psalmist David here is saying, "Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger." A lot of people don't like to think of God as angry, but in, He certainly does grow angry. God is the most patient and understanding being there is, but His patience can run out. And you see that throughout the Bible. There are times where God completely destroyed people. But then the psalmist says, nor discipline me in your wrath. Rebuke and discipline. So the psalmist begs the Lord to refrain from verbal and physical punishment. Even though God disciplines his people, we see that in in Hebrews chapter 12, it's for correction and not destruction. Let, Let me go to Hebrews chapter 12. And, uh, and read what I am referring to here, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 13. Therefore, since we are, so this is often called the, by the way, the hall of faith. Um, uh, well, Hebrews 11, sorry, before that, the chapter before that is called the hall of faith. And so when Paul begins with, or the writer of Hebrews, <laughs> I said Paul, uh, when the author of Hebrews often begins with, Therefore, in chapter 12, uh, he's referring to what he just said about the hall of faith. And he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now keep that that, that phrase in mind, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Some translations say the author of our faith. Continuing, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. This is cited from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11. I think there are other places as well, maybe in the book of Job as well. Verse 7, continuing, it is for discipline that you have to endure God is treating you as sons. 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So that this scripture here in Hebrews is referring to the discipline of the Lord that he he employs with all of his children. And so if you are a child of God, there will be discipline in your life, and we are not to resist it, but it is for the purpose of correction. Um, as a supervisor, if I have to write someone up, if you will, or <laughs> um, hold them accountable for something, the purpose is not that I'm out to get them. It is for correction. We want the action to be corrected. We want them to be successful in what they do. My dad would discipline me when I was a child. My mom would too. And that was for correction. That wasn't because they were out to get me or enjoy doing it. But God disciplines his children. And there have been times in my life where maybe I was living in your steadfast love. The word translated steadfast love here indicates how devotedly God binds himself to his people by his covenant. And then in verse 6 where he says, or in verse 5 where he says, there's no remembrance of you in death. And who's going to give you praise in Sheol? A similar statement is expressed in Psalm 39, uh, verse 9. It's the doctrine of resurrection. Like the doctrine of the Trinity, it is implicit in the Old Testament, but not developed fully until the New Testament. The living observe that the dead are silent and don't take part in worship. So that's what the psalmist is saying here. This word sheol appears quite often in the Old Testament, and it's almost exclusively in poetic passages that reveal the thoughts and fears of the living towards death. So, But keep in mind that these, when, when, when people use the word sheol, these are not necessarily presentations of a doctrine of resurrection or the immediate, the intermediate state, but these are poetic terms. I'm, I'm going to go to Isaiah 14, uh, verses 9 through 11. Listen to this. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. All who were leaders of the earth, it raises from their thrones. All who were kings of the nations... All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. That is not a very pretty picture. Isaiah here uses the popular conception of the real realm of the dead, which is Sheol, with its shadowy figures welcoming the newcomers in an ironic description of Babylon's fall and her descent into the lower regions. And so the use of these conventional ideas is poetic. It is not intended as a theology of the afterlife, but it is poetic. 
in saying that, I do want to make clear that there is an afterlife, and I do believe that there is a literal hell. So I am not suggesting that there is not, as some people might. The point here is when when David is talking about Sheol, in Sheol, who will give you the praise? He's referring to the grave in poetic language. Who's going to give you praise in Sheol? And then in verse 8, he speaks of all you workers of evil. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. He has some hope here now. And he's saying, depart from me because the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. This reference, along with the reference to foes in the preceding verse, verse 7, he says, uh, it grows weak, because my eyes grow weak because of all my foes. This reference uh, to foes is abrupt. And it's possible that the foes are people, like the friends of Job, if you will, who blamed maybe David's sickness on his sin. This was a common belief particularly in Old Testament days, but also in the New Testament. If you remember uh, the story of the lame man and people people asked, well, his, his parents must have done something wrong to be born like this. People believed, and, and even today people still believe, well, and it's an, an unfounded reason, but people believe that, well, if this person has something wrong with them, they must have sinned or somebody created, you know, must have sinned greatly for them to end up like this. And that is not the case at all. However, sickness, illness does exist because of sin. Okay? After the fall, after Adam and Eve, uh, we start experiencing sickness and death. But prior to that, we didn't have that. And so, yes, sickness does exist because of sin in general, in broad terms. But just because you sin does not mean God is going to make you sick. Uh, certainly, there are times where maybe an illness could be a consequence of sin. But that doesn't mean that God's going around looking for people to make sick or to kill just because they sin. That's not the case at all. God is patient. He's understanding. He's loving. And he wants people to repent. How will people repent if they're dead? So God's heart is for people to repent. The psalmist here, all you workers of evil, when he starts this in this language in verse 8, he's beginning to show some hope. He says, depart from me, all you workers of evil. So he's boldly declaring and, and commanding them to go away. He says, because the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my, pre my plea and the Lord accepts my prayer. So he's getting hopeful. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. So the psalmist starts off this lament in just sorrow, very negative approach. And then at the end, you see the hope that he has in God. There's nothing wrong with lamenting. There is nothing wrong with making a complaint, if you will, known to God. There is nothing wrong with that. As long as we always keep our focus on God, on the Lord, and understand who he is, who we are, that we don't deserve anything good at all, and we allow him to do his work in our lives, whatever that may be, whatever that may take. And so, the David here, he spends a little bit of time lamenting, but his focus is still on the glory of God. And you see it at the end when he proclaims that God has heard his cry. And that needs to be our approach, even to prayer. You know, we shouldn't just come to God saying, God, I've got all these issues, I've got all these problems, you're a genie in the bottle, so solve them. That shouldn't be what we do. We should, in fact... Worship God, glorify him, understand who he is. So even though we might lament 
and just be truthful and honest with God. God, here's my situation. It's bad. It's dire. It is hopeless without you. (laughs) But with you, there is hope. And hopefully we can all acknowledge that as this psalm, this lamenting psalm. Uh, I've set this in a minor key. And uh, it, it is a passionate prayer to the Lord. And so... Um, my hope and prayer is that you can use this in your own life, not only this text, but learning how to pray, learning how to lament. Hopefully this is helpful. So uh, thank you for listening today to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Oh,
ashamed, my foes leave suddenly.